Um, I don't know how often I'm going to get a chance to preach, but I thought that I might take my first few opportunities when we come together uh, to talk about parenting and the family. And the reason uh, I wanted to do that is because I have a lot of experience. Um, you know, nine whole years being a husband and six whole years being a dad, I figure I'm ready to start instructing others on uh, how to do parenting. Actually, quite the opposite is true. Um, I need this study as much or more than anyone else in this room, and so this forces me into God's Word in a unique way, and uh, it has been a blessing to me, and so I hope that by sharing these truths with you, uh, we will all grow in how we hand on the faith to the next generation, and that's the point of this morning's sermon. I'm calling it Pass It On, and we're going to look here in Psalm 78, the first eight verses. So if you haven't turned there already, the 78th Psalm, and we're just going to read the first eight verses, although the entire chapter is germane to what we're studying this morning. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's one more time uh, ask the Holy Spirit to come and be with us. God, um, My words are weak and feeble, but your word is strong and powerful. It doesn't return void. So for all of us in here this morning, I pray that your word would find um, soft and fertile ground. I pray that your spirit would take the word of God and work it into our hearts so that we would be made more into the image of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have family traditions and stories or um, uh, things that you hand on from generation to generation. And in uh, the McMorris family, there aren't aren't a whole lot of things like that. But if there is anything like that, it's always uh, in relation to food. Um, so like there's family recipes that get handed down, and that's, that's a really big deal. You know, we don't, we don't own uh, expensive things to hand on to one another, but even more enjoyable and important than that, we own some recipes um, that, are, that are pretty killer. Um, I actually, uh, some of you may not even know where I'm from, except that I'm most recently from Greenville, South Carolina, um, but I'm actually originally even from souther than that. Um, I'm, I was born and reared in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so I grew up eating the best food on earth. Um, fresh crawfish and shrimp and crabs and oysters, all of that I am very at home with when you put in front of me. If it crawled around on the bottom of a river or pond or lake somewhere in a shell, I know what to do with it uh, when it comes to taking it apart and eating it and even how to cook it. Um, so my grandmother makes a fantastic seafood gumbo and, um, and I have now begun making seafood gumbo and maybe some of you uh, will have the opportunity <coughs> to enjoy that. At some point, I'm, I must confess I'm pretty stingy. If you don't like seafood, I'm not making it for you. 
Um, we, you know, and the McMorrison, we don't waste shrimp on people who don't appreciate it. So, um, so uh, but, but some of you may have opportunity to enjoy this with my family. Um, and I anticipate teaching my son how to make that as well. Now, my wife has, you know, expressed interest in, you know, maybe learning how to make it. But I, like, I just, it, it's my, like, she's a Berg McMorris, but I'm a McMorris. And uh, so it stays, it stays on my end. Uh, I, don't, I don't cook much, but I do make really good seafood gumbo. Um, we, we know that that's kind of silly, but all of our families have things that we, you know, know this is part of the, your la- filling in your last name, this is part of our family, and we, we do this, we hand this on. Gathered here this morning, we are collectively one big family. We're actually a family in a sense that, um, that supersedes, that, that, is, that um, governs even our, our human families. There's a family that we're part of that's even more important than the bloodline from which we descend, and that's the Christian family. Sometimes you may hear of a church referred to as a faith family. Well, that's who we are gathered here this morning. And, and God wants for us to, to pass something along to future generations that's even more important than a favorite shotgun or a recipe or a plot of land or you know some family secret. God wants us to make sure that the coming generation and their children, and their children's children are followers of the God of their fathers. Followers of the one true God, Jehovah, born into his family through the work of Jesus Christ. This is what, this is what God has for us. And we see here in Psalm 78, Asaph is the guy who's writing this psalm for us. We see most of our Bibles right underneath uh, Psalm 78. It says, a maskil of Asaph. Asaph's the one writing this psalm. And he starts by trying to get our attention. And that's not a throwaway verse. Verse 1, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. Um, you maybe in your mind can picture a dad with his, with his hands on the sides of the face of his young person. He's saying, you know, listen to me. You know, once you've told your child five times and you realize that they're just out in la-la land and you realize, okay, I got I to gotta bring this kid in. And you, you know, you try to put blind, like blinders on a horse. You trying to get this child's attention. Asaph wants our attention. He wants our attention because he knows that what he's getting ready to hand along to us is not of minimal importance. This isn't just a good suggestion that he's offering us. He realizes that, that for the next generation to get the truth that he's giving us here is of absolute life and death importance. It's of eternal life and death importance. I remember the very first time I ever flew on an airplane. It is absolutely hysterical for me to think back to that, to that time. Um, I was 13 years old. My family had just moved to Michigan from Chicago, and I was going back to Chicago to visit a friend of mine. I was 13. This was a really big deal to me because I was flying by myself, you know, just become a teenager, and, and then to, to get on an airplane, this was a really big deal. I mean, my kids you know, flew before they can even remember. But, but for me, I remember my first time. So I'm on some little puddle jumper from Saginaw, Michigan to Detroit, Michigan. And uh, uh, we, you know, we, we, we take our seats. I, I'm seated there. And everything's just totally new to me. And the lady who comes out and reads through the, the safety instruction booklet that's in the seat pocket there in front of you, I am hanging on every word. Okay, so, you know, she's talking about in case of, uh, you know, loss of cabin pressure, 
you know, masks will deploy and make sure your mask is on before you put it on the person next to you. Like, I'm, I'm memorizing this. I'm looking at the chart. I'm seeing, I wish I could open it up and see the mask and try it on, make sure, go ahead and get it adjusted. Because in my world, in my mind, this is probably gonna happen, okay? And then in case of a water landing, your seat cushion is also uses a flotation device, which is of no comfort whatsoever. In case of a water landing, right? Like, she, she can't just say, in case we crash in the middle of, you know, the Lake Michigan, she has to call it a water landing. Um, and, and so I, you know, this is of no comfort to me, but I know that my seat cushion can be used as a flotation device. And, and then um, in the seat pocket in front of me, someone told me that there would be a um, motion sickness bag, you know, in case you get sick and need to use that bag. Uh, well, I'd never flown. I didn't know what was going to happen to my body when the airplane took off from the ground. So I had the bag open in front of me. We're, I mean, we're taxiing. We're not even, we're not doing anything yet. And I've got it open in front of me. And I was kind of unaware to this point that there was a guy next to me who was my age and he's just looking at me. Like, wh- what's going on? And we, we started talking and I realized that we were, I think, exactly the same age, except his family lived in Europe and he had flown all over the world. And so to him, this was quite amusing to watch this uh, peer uh, who had never uh, experienced this before. I-, I was hanging on this lady's words uh, because I knew that what she was saying might be of life or death to me. Fortunately, it is not. It was not. Um, and now I'm often asleep before the airplane takes off uh, from the runway. So uh, things have changed. But in, in much more significant fashion, Asaph wants our attention. He's like the lady who's working through the, the safety instructions at the front of the airplane, except this isn't just in case of a water landing. This is of eternal significance and eternal importance to the life of our families and to the life of this church. In verse 2, we see the word parable. And a parable, as we know, is a, is a teaching, is a story that sheds light on the truth. And Asaph's saying, I'm going to illustrate my teaching. And he, he actually does that for us in, in verses 9 through 72. The rest of the psalm is him illustrating what he's getting ready to tell us. In verse 2, he also says, I'm going to utter dark sayings of old, right? And at this moment, you expect, uh, you know, some uh, movie score to begin, some, some music score to begin as he talks about uttering dark sayings of old. These are sayings that are difficult to understand without explanation and illumination. And we're going to look at what those dark sayings are. Verse 3, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have taught us. Now we know that when it comes to the word of God, they would have been dealing not with the entire canon of scripture like we have, but they would have been uh, using the Pentateuch. What were these things? What were these things that Asaph is reminding them of? The things that they would have heard from their fathers. What would their fathers have taught them? Well, specifically, this psalm goes on to teach us, and you can take time maybe later this afternoon to read through the psalm and see that Asaph is really reminding them of the history of the nation of Israel. He reminds them of the parting of the Red Sea, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the water from the rock, And even though they'd seen all these things, the children of Israel still sinned. Manna from heaven and quail for food, and yet Israel rebelled. Plagues in Egypt, and God drove out the nations before them as they entered the promised land, and yet they sinned. God gave them the land and put David as their king, and yet they regularly were turning from God and to other idols. And these are the things that Asaph is reminding them of as one 
Theologian says, this then is the purpose of the psalm, to clarify the riddle of the past so that it becomes a lesson for the present and for the future. These riddles or these dark sayings, I believe, are this. How in the world could Israel keep sinning and keep disobeying God when they'd seen him faithful time and time and time again? How in the world could God remain so patient and so faithful to Israel when time and time again Israel had been positively unfaithful toward God? These are the riddles that Asaph is reminding his readers of, those that would read this psalm. Asaph calls their attention to these things because he realizes the vital nature of what he's getting ready to command them to do. They've got to understand the faithfulness of God in order to pass on to the next generation the truth of the faithfulness of God. So, first of all, what does this psalm teach us? We're looking verse 4 and 5 again. Asaph has set it up by saying, here are, the, here are the parables, here are the dark sayings. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach the, to their children. First of all, we must teach. We like the children of Israel, must teach to the next generation the mighty works of the Lord. This is what Asaph does. He says, teach your children what God has done, and then the rest of the psalm he recounts what God has done. These glorious deeds, these, might, these mighty works, these wonders. Again, in this passage, Asaph's reminding them of the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar of cloud and fire and the plagues in Egypt, etc. Asaph is dazzling the children of Israel with who God is and what he's done. And we too, brothers and sisters, are to dazzle God, excuse me, to dazzle the next generation with who God is and what he's done. Dads, we're to show our children a picture of God that amazes them and dazzles them. Moms, you're to speak of the God who, whom you worship in such a way that your children want this God grandfathers, aunts, uncles, older generation to the younger generation in this congregation were to speak to God in a way that dazzles the younger generation. And please don't misunderstand me. Uh, I don't mean that you have to be an entertainer or a college professor. You don't have to be someone who has their teaching credential in order to do this. You see, you see God is dazzling. You don't make him dazzling. You simply show him off. Right? So if I had some big, beautiful diamond up here, I wouldn't try to convince you that it's beautiful other than to show it to you and to let you see its facets and to let, let you see what happens when I shine light on it. And so our lives are to simply be shining light on who God is, giving our children, the next generation, a window into who their, their fathers and their grandfathers God is so that they for themselves see the beauty of God. It's like putting something good in, your, in something that tastes good. If I put it in your mouth... I can't, I can't convince you that it tastes good other than you biting down on it and realizing, wow, yes, that tastes good. Wow, yes, that diamond is beautiful. And to show our children who God is doesn't mean that we have to embellish God. We simply show them who our God is. And this is what Asaph was doing, reminding the children of Israel 
of the great God that they served. What wondrous works have you seen God do? How have you seen God provide? How have you seen him answer prayer in your life and in your family's life? How have you seen him protect you and protect your family? Tell them. Tell them what he's done for you and what he's done for your family. Tell them what you've seen or what you've read about how God has taken care of Christians throughout history or, or people in the Bible. And you'll, you'll note that I'm not, I'm not specifically yet focusing in on moms or dads or grandparents because as a church, we have a responsibility to care for the next generation. Now, I'm going to focus in on dads here in just a few minutes. But one of the things I loved, I was here for the, uh, the parent dedication, I think is what we call it here, right? Not baby dedication, but parent dedication where uh, Jeff and Megan came and, and dedicated, or were dedicated. I see my language is still old. Um, they were dedicated in front of the congregation uh, as they brought little Jack up here. And, um, and, and we all, as a congregation, acknowledged that, that we have a responsibility to this family as well. So yes, Jeff and Megan have a responsibility to show Jack the God that they worship. But as a congregation, we also entered in to this family to help Jack see the God of, their, of his father and of his mother. And as we, as, we, as we show our children the beauty of their God and the wonderful things that he has done, it should be pretty quick and pretty easy for us to get to the most glorious, most wonderful thing that God has done. And immediately, I think most of our minds immediately run to the cross. Our minds run to the good news of what Christ has done for us in his living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death and being raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has done for us in sending his son the most amazing, the most wonderful thing in the world. I want my kids to be amazed by the story of Jonah and the whale. I want my kids to love hearing the story of David and Goliath. I I want them to hear those stories and believe that they really happened. But I want one story to be the story that ties it all together. One story to be the, the pinnacle of their Bible, and that is the story of God loving a sinful human race so much that he sacrifices his own son. Do your kids and grandkids, do they know how you came into the family of God? Do your children know the story of your conversion? It's the best story you have to tell them. Tell them how that daddy was an enemy of God. Romans 5 makes that clear. My guns were pointed at God. I wasn't running toward him. I was running away from him. I didn't want him. I wanted nothing to do with him. And yet God, in his kindness, rescued daddy and has actually brought him to the table and has now made him a child and given him a robe. And I'm part of the family of God, Jay, as if I were talking to my son. Not not because I ran toward God, but because God rescued me. And if you're going to be part of this family, my son, God's got to rescue you too. This is the story that everyone in here who knows Christ as their Savior has to share with their child share with their family. So grandfathers, share this with your grandchildren. Dads, share it with your uh, kids. Aunts and uncles, share it with your nieces and nephews. Slightly older people, share it with slightly younger people. We must teach the words, excuse me, the works of God. And secondly, we must teach the mighty words of God. I'm not real good with giving outlines, but some of you, you know, your brains only work if I give you an outline. So We must teach them the works of God. We must teach them the words of God is number two. 
we must teach the mighty words of God. I love the emphasis that this church has on the word of God. Uh, you, you don't care to come and hear a sermon in which cool, you know, uh, kind of life lessons are taught or warm and fuzzy stories are told. You want to hear from the word of God. And this is what we must teach our children. Verse 5 refers to uh, the, the law. Let me flip back there. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, a written law that, that these people could refer to, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their, to their children. And this is what we must teach our children as well, that God has given us a law. Of course, this refers to at least the law given at Sinai. They would be aware and familiar with the Ten Commandments, but, but that certainly means even more than just those ten words, those ten commands, but, but all of the Scripture up to that point. And now for us, all of the canon of Scripture. And I think it's interesting, if you'll remember, the law actually begins this way. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So even the law of God, the words of God, begin by recounting the works of God. The word of God is about the work of God. And most preeminently, the work of God in Christ for us. This is a steadfast and trustworthy source of information for us to hand on to our kids, right? Mama's gumbo recipe might get diluted throughout the years, right? Grandpa's shotgun's going to get scratched and, you know, somebody's not going to be aware and they're going to, you know, pawn it off and um, that sort of thing. But the written word of God is a sure testimony. And this is what we have to hand on to our children and to their children, right? It's not like the gossip game. You've played this before, right? Where about you sit in a big circle and you whisper something in the person ne- uh, next to you and you whisper it into their ear and they whisper it to the person next to them and it comes all the way back around to you and then when it gets to you, it, it hardly even represents what you originally said to the person next to you. It's not like that. We don't have to worry about it losing its, its truthfulness. So this is what we must hand on to the next generation. This is, what my, this is what I want my children, Jay and Christiana and Evangeline, and if God gives us more to them as well. That's not an announcement, by the way. We're still, you know, we're talking about that. Um, so just to let you into our family. Um, but th- this is what I want, this is what I want my kids to, I don't want them to be committed to daddy's traditions, uh, to daddy's way of doing Christianity, to daddy's music, to daddy's style. I want them to, to take the word of God and to be radically committed to it. And this is what Asaph is calling the fathers in Israel to do, and this is what God is calling us to do as well. This psalm highlights judgment and redemption. Judgment and redemption. And we must do the same in our teaching. Right? You read through the psalm, and it talks about how that God is going to bring judgment, and the children of Israel turn. They turn to a, uh, a merciful God, and God gives them uh, uh, extensive in mercy and grace and offers them redemption. And we must teach our children this as well. So even when I'm correcting my children, I almost always use words like this. Disobedience brings correction. That's, that's teaching them of judgment. But obedience brings blessing, and that reminds them of redemption. And then I'm, I'm quick to say, there's only one person who ever obeyed perfectly all the time, That's Jesus. And Jesus lived perfectly all the time for those who will put their faith in him. 
you need Jesus. And you need Jesus in order to obey mommy and daddy. And his obedience is our redemption. We need Jesus to rescue us. So as we teach our children the words of God, even in daily times of discipline and correction, we can be reminding them of the gospel. We must be reminding them of the gospel. The psalm also highlights God's faithfulness to us. Not us to him. In fact, this psalm makes clear that in spite of our unfaithfulness to God, he has remained faithful to us. If my, if my Christianity were dependent on my faithfulness to God, my Christian experience would be an extreme roller coaster, right? Because some days I get up early, I read my Bible, you know, I have uh, you know, warm uh, relations with my, my children and with my wife, and I, I leave and I, I head out of the house, and man, I, f- I feel like, things, like I'm doing well, right? And then other days, I ignore my alarm, I don't read my Bible, I'm rude to my wife, my kids are disobedient, and I leave the house feeling like a train wreck and wondering if I've ever loved God, right? So if, if it's my faithfulness that secures me to God, I'm a train wreck, I'm just, I'm roller coaster Christianity all the time. But when my security comes in God's faithfulness to me, here I've got really solid foundation bedrock to establish my Christian life on. This psalm makes it really clear. Israel remained God's chosen people, not because they were faithful to him, but in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. So we must teach our children that the Lord is our God, not because we have remained faithful from generation to generation, not because my grandfather was a good Christian man and my dad was a good Christian man and daddy's a good Christian man and so you're going to be a good Christian man. None of that is even true. We are Christians, but the good Christian man part? Teach your children that the Lord is, Jehovah is our God because he has remained faithful to us. And what a wonderful thing to say. God was faithful to grandpa and God was faithful to dad and God will be faithful to you as well. Not on their performance, but on the performance of Jesus Christ. Let the teaching of this psalm be of comfort to us, brothers and sisters. We will fail in our attempts to pass it on. We will. We will fail. Um, Sometimes I think, not only am I doing a poor job of parenting, but like I'm actually going to mess my kids up. Like they, they, they would do, I need, I'm going to put them up for adoption so that they have a chance. They will turn out well because God is their father, because he is faithful. The fact that you're sitting here this morning, brothers and sisters, is evidence not of your faithfulness to God. You may have come to church this morning thinking, I'll show my faithfulness to God. Actually, you're here this morning because God has been faithful to you. Verse 5 says, Which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Now here's where I'm going to focus in on dads a little bit. Because dads, I'm not sure why God did it this way. Uh, my experience is that it, I'm not the only one who lives in a, in a family like this. It appears to me... Um, well, I'll just I'll speak for myself and then I'll apply. Um, in my family, God has uh, better equipped my wife to be the leader, planner, administrator, organizer of our family. Um, and that's, that's a way for me to say that I'm lazy. Um, so, so she is the one who, in my opinion, is like better equipped, better gifted, has the ability to kind of, why don't you be the husband and I'll you know, be the wife and, and you know, this will work out better, Okay. Um, 
And, and, and what, what God has done, though, and, and, and as I talk to other friends of mine, I find that this is not an uncommon sort of thing. What God has done is said, husband, you submit to me and lead, and wife, you submit to me and follow your husband. And so it takes this mutual submission, me submitting to God and leading, and my wife submitting to God and following, and it's hard sometimes because leading takes work. And what I find with a lot of husbands is that, that we, we're kind of apathetic. Uh, we, we're, we're a little more um, I'll use a, a softer word. We're laid back, right? Which means lazy. Um, we, you know, we want to chill. It's Saturday, and we've worked hard, you know, all week long. And so, you know, and so has your wife, right? And she doesn't get any day off, and you get Saturday off. We, these are conversations we've had. Um, no, I mean it's good. I mean it's helpful most of the time. There's no, Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on the Psalms, Scripture has no room for parental neutrality. Okay, so, so I've already made it clear that, that uh, your children will worship God because of his faithfulness to them. But there is also clear command in Scripture, dads, for us to, I'll say, man up and lead our families. You might be a good parent. You might be a good dad. You might not be abusive you're loving, you're providing. You might even see to it that your child has godly influences in their lives, but your personal spiritual neutrality is very likely the loudest sermon that they hear. They may hear lots of sermons and they may hear, have lots of Christian influence in their life, but dads, your children are watching you. When we get a taste of the enormous, glorious, mighty, sovereign, loving God of the Bible, we have to realize that spiritual neutrality is not a legitimate response. You, you can't come into contact with God and be complacent about it. I, I heard one pastor use this illustration. Um, let's say that I were to uh, walk into the service late this, eve- this morning, um, and you know, I come up, and I put my microphone on, and I, you know, Adam's been stalling for a few minutes, and I said, I'm sorry, um, I actually, I was walking my family here this morning, and as I was crossing Sierra, right, right here in front of us, yeah, yeah, it's got like 18 different names. Um, as I was crossing the road in front of the school here, uh, I, there was a logging truck that came through, and it was going 80, and it hit me. And so um, that's why I'm a little bit late this morning. No one would believe me, right? Rightfully so. You would say, you, you don't have an encounter with something that big moving that fast and not be radically altered, right? You, you are changed by something like that. You don't just saunter in and, and, and then preach a sermon after getting hit by a logging truck going 80. And brothers and sisters, for, for us to really encounter the God of the universe and to not be changed by it is wrong. We, we are changed by the God of the universe, And yes, we struggle, and yes, we have experiences similar to Romans 7, where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from the body of this death? Yes, that is still our Christian experience, but brothers and sisters, we, when we come into contact with God, our lives are to be changed by it. He takes ownership, and he demands lordship. He is not an additive to our comfortable middle-class life. He overwhelms and transforms our lives. 
When we live apathetically, parents, we are calling our children to decide between two messages. When we read the Bible, and when we we read the Bible to our children, we're reading to them this message. God is great. God is great. God is great. When they watch our lives, I'm afraid sometimes they hear a second message that says, God is okay. God's okay. God's okay. But something else is great. Your life might preach, God is okay, but golf is great, or work is great, or family is great, or fill in the blank, whatever, whatever, your, whatever idol struggles for dominance in your life. As one uh, parent who precedes me in years reminded me of earlier this week, our children are foolish. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Our children are foolish, but our children are very perceptive. They are very perceptive. Your children, aren't we amazed sometimes, right? We're driving down the road, the kids are in the back seat, mom and dad are talking, and you know, they're you know, reading a book, coloring, you know, playing a video game or something, and then all of a sudden they just like launch a question at you that has to do with the conversation that you were just having, and you realize, whoa, we, you know, we gotta be, we gotta be careful. Or, or they know when, when things aren't right between mom and dad. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, my parents you know, would sometimes, barely, fight um, a little bit. And so, and I knew that, and man, that really unsettled me. Our children are perceptive, but they're, uh, they, they are foolish, but they are also very perceptive. So just because they're foolish doesn't mean they aren't perceptive. We tend to trust Sunday school teachers and Christian school teachers and pastors and college teachers and seminary professors and theologians with the promotion of our faith. But the promotion of the Christian faith is to primarily happen in the home. So we can't think, I'll supplement what they get at church. We must think church will equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Church will come alongside me. Church will supplement me. Church is critical. It is secondary, though no less necessary. Do you understand that? Church is secondary to the home, but it is no less necessary than the home. But home is number one. Your child can have all of these Christian influences in their lives, but on a, human level, it, on a human level, it is almost impossible to preach louder than the sermon they're getting from you at home. Deuteronomy 6 backs this up. Ephesians 6 backs this up. Our passage, just these eight verses, mentions fathers three times. And of course, mothers and grandparents and other church members are of vital importance. Dads, we need to feel the weight and the burden of this today. I don't think I can overemphasize the importance of this. Jesus was really serious about making sure that children got the big picture, right? In Matthew 18, 6, he says, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me, excuse me, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus says, it's better for you to die than to mess up one of these kiddos. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The scripture says that the word corrects us and convicts us, and I know that for many of us this morning, these are corrective and convicting words, and I want to do these things patiently and kindly, but I also must do what God calls us to do in his word. Dads, this looks like something. 
It actually looks like something in your home. You've got to be able to see this happening in your home. It takes place in your schedule. It pushes other things out of your calendar. I was talking with a friend of mine uh, earlier this week, and, and I was sharing with him some ways that God's convicting me in this very area and ways that I want to uh, shepherd my wife better and minister to my children better. And he asked a very, very helpful question. He said, what's that going to look like? What, what does this mean? What's going to be different because you, want, you say you want to shepherd your family better? How's this going to look different in your family? Parenting is hard work. Fathering is hard work. And many, most, maybe, maybe I can even say all of you in here know what it is to work hard, okay? I mean, this has been uh, uh, cool for me to come and, and dive into the ag community here and to see how so many of you are sun up to sundown, working diligently and working hard. So you know what it is to work diligently. It takes this same kind of um, uh, looking forward to the future, right? So, I mean, I've, I've been learning a lot about farming. It's almost been comical how little I knew about farming, right? Because I thought, um, I shared this with a few guys here, I, I thought that, you would, that I would come out here and like I would see people taking peach seeds and putting them in the ground and covering them with dirt and watering them and then like, you know, 15 years later, you can start harvesting peaches, okay? And then, I, man, you know, I ride along with uh, Andy Muxlow and, and he's giving me the, all the science behind it. I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. This is amazing. But, but even at that, there is a, a next year, a five years down the road, 10 years down the road. What am I going to do with this field? Wh- where are we going with, with this kind of fruit? There's got to be that same kind of down the road look with our children. Where are their strengths and weaknesses now? How can I address them now? Where will they be in five years and 10 years and 15 years? This is the kind of attention we have to give to our children. You don't have to be a scholar, but you do have to have a plan. You do need to work at it. I can, I can say, I could say this, I'm a golfer. I could say that, but until it takes up time in my schedule and it works its way into my life, like I'm watching golf and reading about golf and conversing with others about golf, I'm not really a golfer, right? You've got you've to do it. To, to be considered a golfer. I can say that I'm a Christian parent, but just because I've fathered a child and I am a Christian doesn't mean that I'm doing Christian parenting until it takes up time in my schedule and works its way into my reading, into my conversation with others. Until then, I'm not a Christian parent. Let me give you a little list of application of what this, what this, what this looks like. Number one, this looks like dads who are growing spiritually personally. Number two, this looks like dads who read and study and get counsel from others on how to do it well. Okay, so young dads, grab, grab some of the older dads, some of the old dads in here, and ask them how they did it, right? I mean, we're having the gaddies over tonight. They're old, and that's what we're going to talk about, <laughs> you know? How did you? I'm just kidding. I'm glad Val's laughing, too. Okay. <laughs> There are a lot of good resources here in this congregation for you to do that, okay? And, and older dads, um, like just, just go proactive, right? Because some of us younger guys are a little bit like, uh, you know, it's going to seem like I don't have my act together. And you're watching us, and you're going, they don't have their act together. So just come along and, you know, take us out for coffee and say, look, you, you're, you, can, 
improve in this area. Just, just take us over your knee and lovingly uh, give us some advice. Uh, number three, it looks like dads who pay attention in church and then talk with their families about it later in the week or later that day. Number four, dads who talk to their children intentionally and regularly. I mean, I fail at this more than I succeed, but I try to turn as many conversations as possible to, toward the things of the faith, toward God and toward his gospel. I mean, there are so many times where I'll pull in somewhere with my three kids in the back and I'll realize I just drove for 15 minutes listening to the radio when all three of my kids were in the back seat. We could have been singing, we could have been talking about something, we could have said a verse together. It doesn't mean that every time they sit down in the backseat of the car, I'm opening the Westminster Confession and reading to them. I mean, that might not be a bad idea. I have friends who do that sort of thing. But, I mean, you can at least just say, God made a beautiful day, didn't he? You know, and then, you know, then they go right back to their door of the Explorer. That's okay. So turn things like, like lollipops and sunsets and rain and balloons into conversations about God. I have a friend of mine who says that he, he tries to think of himself as his family's tour guide through history. So as they're living day after day, as they're going through God's creation, he just tries to think, I'm, I'm God's tour guide for my family. So when we get in the car and we go somewhere or when we see something on TV about you know, uh, people dying of starvation or when a friend has a miscarriage, I'm, I'm the one responsible just to keep bringing my family through this and pointing them to God pointing them to his gospel. That's a helpful image for me. Five, dads who oversee the spiritual disciplines of their children. This is hard to do if you aren't doing it, so make sure that you're doing it. And you must be bold. Some parents are afraid to talk to their kids. Remember, God put that 15-year-old in the home of a 40-year-old on purpose. Number six, dads whose lifestyles preach. Their wardrobe, their collections, their hobbies, their pastimes, their conversations all point to the truth that Jesus Christ is of supreme value in their life. And there is nothing in the world that is more desirable than him. Number seven, this looks like dads who don't do a lot of things that they could do. Dads who put down the remote or the golf club or sell a bicycle or sell their fishing poles or whatever in order to spend time with their kids. Or dad who picks up a fishing pole and another one, and takes his kid. Okay, it's, not, it's not always just get rid of everything, and now my life's miserable, but at least I can be you know, talking to my kid. Cotton Mather, an old Puritan, writes this. He calls it a father's resolution. Parents, oh, how much ought you to be continually devising for the good of your children. Often devise how to make them wise children, how to give them a desirable education an education that may render them desirable, how to render them lovely and polite and serviceable in their generation, often devise how to enrich their minds with valuable knowledge, how to instill generous, gracious, and healthy principles in their minds, how to restrain and rescue them from the paths of the destroyer and fortify them against their peculiar temptations. There is a world of good that you have to do for them. You are without the natural feelings of humanity if you are not in a continual agony to do for them all the good that ever you can. Brothers and sisters, what on earth is more important to, than this? Now, I'm aware that some of you in here may be from single-parent homes. You might be single-parent moms. Some of you have kids uh, who don't even know their fathers, or your dad has failed miserably in this area. Let me, 
uh, let me encourage you and point you to rest confidently in your heavenly Father. Psalm 68, 5, he's a father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. That is no small promise. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, you don't get a second-rate father figure when your earthly father dies. And of course, there is the church who, in James, is called to minister to the orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, let me also interject here that there is a responsibility on the parts of sons and daughters, right? Proverbs 13.1, a wise son or daughter hears his father's instruction. So for those who are of the children age in here, I realize that all the little youngins are gone, but it is wisdom for you to hear the instruction of your father. So we see that, number one, we're to teach them the, words of, the works of God, and number two, the works of God. And then number three, there are results. There are blessings, and there are consequences and blessings. There are consequences and blessings to our obedience here. Look in verse 8. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So for our children to miss this mean that they are like previous generations who did not know God. They are not faithful to him. There are devastating consequences if we don't pass this on. But there are blessings if we do. What kind of things do you dream for for your kids? What do you hope for for them? Do you work hard so that they can go to a school where they can make the grade, where they can get into a good college so that they can get a good job, so that they can live comfortably, so that they can send their children to a good college, so that they can get a good job, so that they can live comfortably, so that they can send their children to a good college, so they can get a good job, so that they can live comfortably. That is not worth living for. But multi-generational faithfulness to God, children who know the God of their fathers, that is worth living for. Children whose hope is their God, whose hope is their God. This is personal faithfulness. Children who do not forget his works. These are phrases I'm pulling right out of this passage. They, they, uh, their, their hope is in God. They do not forget his works. This is informed thinking. Children who have informed thinking. They think of God and his word. They keep his commandments. This is obedient living. They obey. A wise son makes a glad father. Now, in conclusion, let me give us a window of hope here because if you're a father like I and you've heard a sermon like this, at this moment you feel far more guilt and hopelessness than encouragement and hope. You might be thinking, oh, Jeremy, you, you know, that, that all sounds good and I'm supposed to do that and I actually knew before you preached this sermon that I was supposed to do all that stuff and I'm more aware of my failure in these areas than in my success and my obedience in these areas. And, and let me just th- cast my vote right into that as well. That, that is right where I am. But there, brothers and sisters, is hope for us. I, I know how many conversations I waste and how many evenings at home I've done my own thing instead of caring for my family and how often I placate my children rather than shepherding them. And while I do think we should feel the weight of this passage and it should motivate us, if we don't leave here this morning with gospel hope and motivation, 
we'll just leave here more condemned than we came. So if you're feeling right now like, well, there's a happy Sunday for me. Went to church and got kicked in the teeth. Uh, you know, I hope Adam preaches again next Sunday. Let's remember the point of the psalm. The point of the whole point of the psalm is that God is faithful to horribly unfaithful people. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, he who calls you is faithful. So he calls us to live this way, but he's the one who's faithful. He will surely do it. I was talking to one dad earlier who's almost all of his kids are out of the, the family, and he used this phrase. I thought it was, it was great. God is the one who kept us in the ball game. We'd be, we'd be messing up, and I knew that I'd be straying away from God. God's the one who, who kept us in the ball game. And what he was testifying to was God's faithfulness in his life. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32, and I think we're, we're ending with this passage. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that includes the power to obey his commands, the ability to do what he's called us to do. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Where does your strength come from? Where does your confidence come from? My hope does not come from a shred of self-confidence or personal discipline. My hope comes through knowing that there is one who has perfectly lived for me and died to pay my ransom and has made available for me the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that works in you. That's really big power. That's, that's yeah, really big power. So that I can live victoriously and live obediently. Fathers, spend your time focused on this. Not even primarily parenting techniques or reading parenting books, all, all of that I encourage you to do. But, but if you get so focused on just, I got to read parenting books and I got to read my Bible today and I got to talk to Garth now because that's the, apparently the person to go to. And, uh, you know, I've got I've to get all my ducks in a row so that my parents turn out well. You're still missing the point. The point is to spend your time focused on this greatest story ever told, the good news, that Jesus has made it possible for us to live this way. Live motivated by love and hope. Live happily and humbly before your family because of the gospel. And your kids will see this and they'll know it's because of God and they'll want that God. So remember this today, that the Father in heaven cursed his son so that you could pass on to your son the truth that would enable them to put their hope in him. He cursed his son so you could bless yours. Pass that on. Let's pray.